0: Howdy, listeners from coast to coast, the Gulf to Canada, and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Well, another tempestuous week. Gee, it's it's kind of the expected now, isn't it? Lots of stuff to go over with you. Number one, we're going to finish up our kind of four-part series. Three weeks ago, the Declaration of Independence, the history of that incredible document. And then followed by the history of the Constitution. Followed last week by the history of the Bill of Rights. If you haven't listened to those shows, please do. Remind yourself what it means to be an American, what the Founders sacrificed, what these documents mean, how they enshrine your rights, and get fired up to protect them. Because, folks, it's time to get fired up. As I think you'll get from the gist of this show, because this show is kind of the culmination of this series. This show is on Treason, treason against the United States. We're going to discuss what treason is. I'm going to give you, oh, I don't know, 10 or 15 examples of treason against the United States over the course of its history, although there are others. And I think we're going to tie that in a little bit to what we see happening today, which is treason, folks. And we'll discuss what the penalties for treason are in the Constitution and elsewhere in state law. It's interesting because treason can be committed against both the state and The country. And then we're going to have our rant story and we're going to have our quote, this time from George Washington. And we're going to discuss just a little bit because I've received a number of emails about what I think about Kevin McCarthy being ousted as Speaker of the House. Well, you know, the answer is not simple. So I'm going to give you my opinion, and I'm going to tell you why I think it's good and why I think it's bad. Although, as we say with everything, time tells all tales. And of course, then I'll tell you the rest of the story. More of the rest of the story as a question for you to ponder. And then of course we're going to have rat-a-tat-tat. Oh yes, a whole bunch of rat-a-tat-tat. Lots of things going on on the planet Earth. Not a whole lot of them good. Some of them okay. So Let's get started. Number one, our quote, our founder's quote, George Washington, fitting for this show, the culmination of our, you know, founding documents series. Quote However, political parties may now and then answer popular ends, they are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion, Unquote. How's that for a quote which fits today's dilemma? Kind of prescient, don't you think? Maybe that's why he's the founding father of our country. And then our rant story. You know, this is not really a rant story, but it's kind of related. If you remember, oh, I don't know, six, seven weeks ago, I was coming back from book signing at the State Fair in Boise, Idaho, and my trailer lights malfunctioned. And I pulled into a trailer shop, which was very helpful. Very helpful. Well, I've meant to do this, really, for three or four weeks. And I won't bore you with the details of why it didn't happen. But I want to give a plug to those folks who helped me that day. Because, you know, in helping me, they displayed their humanity, they displayed their professionalism, and they displayed their Americanism. Because in the end, we are all Americans, folks. And the helping hand we lend others will always come back to us. So, to acquaint you again with the story, my trailer lights went out. My junior publisher assistants that were following me let me know. And I kind of randomly chose a trailer repair shop on my phone, which I hate using. I mean, I'm just not good at this stuff. You know, it's Jurassic Park, Dinosaurville. And I called them, and they said, you come right over. We'll get you fixed up. And we thought that it was going to be, oh, you know, a half an hour job at max. It was probably just a bad plug. And I drive in, they drop everything, they had a whole bunch of work going, you could tell by the shop. And Trent, and his soon-to-be bride, we'll get into that in just a moment, just jumped right on it. I mean, they were right on it. And come to find out, the wiring that someone, who knows who, had put together was completely backwards. It was just a mess. And Trent spent oh, several hours rearranging wires, taking things apart, and his lovely bride-to-be was out getting parked. Parts because we needed this wire and that wire and this and that, and we needed a new control box, etc. To make a long story short, in the course of this, Trent took a break. It was brutally hot. I mean, it was. Over a hundred. It was just sweltering. And we were out outside the shop, so we were in the sun, and it was a mess. And Trent said, let's get some lunch. So he brings me into his shop slash office, and he had homemade lasagna, which I guess is one of his specialty dishes, which was, by the way, it was great. It was delicious. We had a pop or whatever we had, and we had this homemade lasagna, and he kind of told me about how he and his soon-to-be missus had met. And, you know, they had met really as little kids in elementary school in Idaho and they had known of each other but you know nothing ever really clicked and then over the course of years through family situations and other things she moved to Alaska and they began to correspond And once again, prompted by some similarities and relationships between family members who were friends, etc. Well, the correspondence grew to the point where she came down and visited. And then, Trent got hurt. And she nursed him back to health. And the rest, as they say, is history. And a more delightful couple you really couldn't find anywhere. And a more professional couple. After lunch, Trent jumped back on this thing. You know, this half an hour job. That in the end, took like five plus hours. I mean it was just outrageous and when i drove out i was kind of testing everything out there was still a couple little things kind of off i drove back once again he dropped what he was doing jumped right on it did everything that had to be done and i was off and running i didn't get back to the ranch till like six o'clock in the morning the next morning but that's besides the point these guys were absolutely terrific and i just want to give them a national plug And because they deserve it, they deserve all the business that we can give them. And by the way, any other businesses, no matter what line of business, that go out of the way to help you, particularly when you need, and time is of the essence, and they disrupt their schedule for you, and they do a great job with fastidious detail, all those types of businesses, small businesses, not big businesses, need our support. So let me tell you that their shop is called United RV Repair It's at 4501 South Federal Way, Boise, Idaho 83716, and their phone is 208-860-1179. Their website by the way is www.unitedrvrepair. By the way, as an aside, there's a United RV Repair that is also based in Texas. They're not affiliated. I've never dealt with a Texas outfit. I don't know if they're good, bad, ugly, or indifferent, but I will tell you that this Boise outfit, actually mountain home right outside of Boise, is absolutely fantastic. The people are fantastic. Their work is great, and they are were an absolute pleasure. And then on top of all that, he didn't charge me for half the time he should have. I mean, I, I kind of felt badly. Gave him a book, gave them each a book, but I kind of felt badly at how little he charged me for this extra effort in the middle of his other work schedule, which, you know, his lot was jammed. So, I mean, they're very busy, and they must be very well-respected in the area. I just want to tell you folks, once again, unitedrvrepair.com, mountain Home. Idaho. For all you folks in the Idaho area and in the Boise area, and I know lots of you listen to me, these guys are super duper. That's all I can tell you. They're just super duper. If you got anything to do with trailers or RVs or whatever, these guys are your go to shop. And for those of you in other parts of the country and up there in Canada who are snowbirds and you're going to be traveling to Arizona or point south, Here over the coming months to escape the oncoming winter, this is your stop. If you need anything done, you need anything tuned up, you need anything checked, these folks will get it done for you. And I mean they will get it done right. So, once again, my hat's off to the kids, the folks at UnitedRVRepair.com in Mountain Home, Idaho, outside of Boise. And by the way, they're right off the highway, so very easy to reach. Okay, that's my rant story. Now let's talk about treason, shall we? We've discussed the founding documents in some detail, and let's talk about what treason is. Treason is an act of hostility that is contrary to the founding documents. Now, it's been perverted lately, you know, sedition, etc., because it's been perverted into an act against the government. Well, you know, The government is only valid and just when the government is based on and follows strictly the founding documents. So the definition of treason, shall we say, are being distorted by a corrupt DOJ and a corrupt administration and a corrupt law enforcement branch of the executive branch of the administration. Listen to my show on the Constitution. It's kinda interesting because four of the thirteen colonies had enacted treason statutes by 1800, and four more had done so by 1820. The remaining four colonies had treason laws by 1862, along with other states that had joined the Union. And by 2013, 43 states had treason laws. It's interesting to note that only 21 of those states defined treason as in terms of a law, only in their constitution. Let's talk about the definition of treason, shall we? It's specifically limited in the Constitution, which is Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution. Quote, only in levying war against the United States or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid. That's the only definition of treason in the Constitution. Most state constitutions, by the way, include kind of similar definitions of treason specifically kind of limited to levying war against that particular state, or adhering to the enemies of the state, or aiding the enemies of the state. And all these treason laws require two witnesses or a confession in open court for the perpetrator to be found guilty. What's kind of interesting, only 30 people in the history of the United States have ever been charged with treason under these laws. In Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution, which is the definition of treason, the teeth, which are not really in the Constitution, are found under U.S. Code Title 18, and the penalty, folks, for treason is death. In the alternative, Someone found guilty of treason, depending upon, I suppose, the amount and the level of treason and its effect on the United States, or the state that's bringing the charges, is not less than five years imprisonment, a minimum fine of $10,000, and any person who's convicted of treason against the United States also forfeits the right to hold any public office in the United States. Now, although it's been subverted and twisted by the current people illegitimately in charge of the government, think back to George Washington's quote here that we just shared, this is one of the things they're trying to throw at Trump. You know, they're guising it as sedition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the bottom line is they're trying to get a conviction which will preempt him from holding public office, therefore running for president. The terms in the definition of treason derive from The English legal tradition, it goes way, way, way back. And if you want to trace it all the way back, for those of you who like to do that kind of thing, the Treason Act 1351, British law. Levying war means the assembly of armed people to overthrow the government or to resist its laws, unquote. Enemies are subjects of a foreign government that is in open hostility with the United States, unquote. It's kind of interesting because treason laws... And treason itself in the founding documents doesn't distinguish between the participants the actual participants in the treasonous acts and accessories to the acts in other words all persons who quote unquote rebel or intentionally give aid to hostilities are subject to the exact same level of treason charge death sentences for under the constitution have only been carried out twice the execution of the Taos Revolt insurgents in 1847, and that of William Bruce Mumford during the Civil War. There's been a handful of people convicted of the offense at the federal level, and there's been a number of people that have been convicted at the state level, some of whom have been hanged. It's kind of interesting to note that most of the treason convictions that have been obtained by either states or or by the federal government, have in the end been annulled by the presidents, or succeeding presidents, of the United States. I find that fascinating, actually. And as the basis for all this, constitutionally speaking, U.S. citizens have allegiance to two government entities, the United States of America and their state of legal residence. Think back to the Tenth Amendment in the Bill of Rights. Therefore, they can potentially commit treason against either, or both of those government entities. Fourteen people have been charged with treason against various states. Six were convicted, five of whom, at the state level, were executed. The states, obviously, are a little tougher on treason than the feds. Let me share with you some of the acts of treason and the results over the course of years of United States history. If you remember, the Confederation of States and the Convention of States, which eventually took the, the Articles of Confederation and turned them into the Constitution. That was our show two weeks ago. was prompted in large degree um, by the animosity between states, by the fact that the, the, the fledgling union was in the throes of disintegration. And the thing that really got everybody's attention, the catalyst for the Convention of States which wrote and ratified the Constitution, was the Shays' Rebellion. And that was in western Massachusetts. It was a revolutionary war hero. He was fed up with taxation. He mobilized a militia, and he tried to seize the armory there in western Massachusetts. That was the catalyst for the Convention of States, and therefore, in its own way, ironically, the catalyst for the drafting and ratification of our primary founding document, the Constitution. All three grand pages of it. It's amazing. Let's talk about the Whiskey Rebellion. This was an armed uprising against the federal government over, again, taxes. Remember, taxes are what, they were like the primary catalyst. They were the fuse that lit the bomb that became the revolution. During the first administration of George Washington, there were Pennsylvania farmers and distillers, you know, moonshine makers. And they rose in protest against a tax on their distilled spirits, which, by the way, were made of corn, rye, wheat, and was called American whiskey. And their resistance to taxation of their product led to the revolt. It grew, by the way, to the point that President Washington mobilized the army out of militia provided by several different states. He even donned his old uniform to lead it against the rebels as commander-in-chief. This was, as a sidelight, the only time in American history that the President of the United States appeared in uniform while executing the duties of his office. Now, if you're a cadaver, you have yourself flanked by uniformed marines. <laughs> you know, totally against tradition, but I digress. The Worcester Rebellion had a big battle. It was called the Battle of Bower Hill and it was near Pittsburgh, and there were actually casualties amongst the rebels and the militia, and it took a huge show of force to suppress the rebellion in 1794. Several of the leaders were tried for treason. There were 24 indicted, 10 were captured and stood trial. Two, a guy by the name of Philip Vogel and another one by John Mitchell, were convicted and sentenced to be hanged, and Washington pardoned both of them. There were others that were tried and convicted of lesser charges in the Pennsylvania state courts, and they went to prison. Ironically, this show of force by the federal government against the whiskey rebellers was generally met with approval by the American population, and it kind of legitimized in its own way the Constitution, the solidarity of the states as a cohesive entity in the western lands. At that time, remember, the western lands were Pennsylvania. In 1807, there was a former vice president who was tried for treason, Aaron Burr. You know the name. He had a famous duel with Alexander Hamilton and killed Hamilton, by the way. He escaped any retribution for that kind of despicable act. But while he was serving as vice president in 1804... See if this rings a bell, folks. Let's see, who was vice president under Obama? Oh, that's right, that guy by the name of Biden. He contacted the British minister to the United States... Whose name was Anthony Murray. And he informed Mr. Murray that the residents of the recently purchased Louisiana Purchase would welcome British protection and that he could cause a large portion of what is now the central United States. They become a British protectorate. Mary, in fact, forwarded Burr's suggestion, we'll call it, to London. Burr actually contacted Mary again, asking for British naval support and money. And he was paid $1,500. Now think about what $1,500 is way back then, folks. Gee, it's kind of like 5 or $10 million from China today. <laughs> imagine that. But he told him that London had given him no further instructions. Burr amassed supplies. He's, he put together co-conspirators, he began to arm militiamen, and he began to travel downriver on the Ohio and Mississippi rivers to lead the rebellion and get British support. One of his fellow conspirators, we'll talk about him in just a moment, he had his own sordid past, came to the conclusion that this deal was not going to work, and he was a whistleblower. He informed the U.S. government that Burr was planning to create his own empire in The American West. Remember, the American West at that time was Pennsylvania on the North and Louisiana on the South. President Jefferson at the time ordered Burr arrested for treason, and the former Vice President, Burr, was actually tried before a court. The Chief Justice... Of the Supreme Court, John Marshall, remember his name from our previous three shows in this series? He presided. Burr was acquitted due to lack of evidence because they couldn't put together two witnesses that could testify to his acts. Remember, the Constitution requires that Anybody else that was involved in the conspiracy also got off. And that brings us to the whistleblower who turned in Burr. His name was James Wilkinson, and he was involved in all sorts of nefarious activity. He was a career military officer and he was involved in scandal and double-dealing and treasonous activity throughout his career, kind of like some of the folks at the higher echelons of the military right now, don't you think? During the American Revolution, Wilkinson joined the cobble of officers who schemed to have George Washington removed from command of the Continental Army. Hmm. And during the 1790s, Wilkinson While he was commissioned, a commissioned officer in the United States Army accepted payments from the Spanish government in New Spain to protect the interests of Spain. Hmm. Let's see. Ukraine, Romania, Russia, China. Need I say more? General Anthony Wayne, another commander in the United States Army, finally developed enough evidence to try and court-martial Wilkinson. But Wayne unfortunately died before the case ever came to the court-martial. From 1800 to 1812, remember the War of 1812, folks, Wilkinson held the position of being the senior officer in the United States Army. Yeah, that gives you some thought, doesn't it? And he continued to receive payments from the Spanish, serving as a spy. I mean, an actual spy for the Spanish government. During Wilkinson's, this guy was such a scumbag, during his testimony at the trial of Aaron Burr, he produced a letter which was quote-unquote written in cipher, which described the conspiracy, but later it was found, in fact during the trial, that Wilkinson had altered the letter to minimize his own involvement in Burr's uprising. Wilkinson's many acts of treasons only came to light after his death in Mexico City, where he was serving as an envoy in 1825. Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, the rough writer, later said of Wilkinson, quote, in all our history, there's been no more despicable character, unquote. In 1798, Here's a third example for you. In 1798, the Fry's Rebellion. So, the United States and revolutionary France, they had been allies, but now they were kind of involved in a series of naval battles and privateering actions. It was known as the Quasi-War. Wars cost money, whether they are announced or they're not announced. Think about Ukraine. And the federal government under John Adams enacted taxes, back to the taxes, to raise $2 million, which... Back then, I suppose it was worth one hundred fifty billion that went to Ukraine over the last few years. And the taxes would be on slaves and real property. And it was apportioned to the states in accordance with the Constitution, i. e. population. So Pennsylvania was required to contribute $237,000, and of course, there were very few slaves in Pennsylvania. So instead, the Pennsylvania legislature, in their infinite governmental wisdom, began to tax houses and commercial buildings, and the amount was determined literally by the number of windows, or in some instances, the size of windows. (laughs) This is great. And Tax collectors kind of wandering around the street, counting your windows and measuring your windows, did not go well with the people of Pennsylvania, to put it mildly. And there was an auctioneer by the name of John Fries, F-R-I-E-S. He organized resistance, and it rapidly spread across the entire state. The U.S. Marshal Force was unable to quell what was becoming an increasingly violent resistance to this tax. So John Adams, President Adams, sent in federal troops Fries and most of the higher-ups in the insurrection were arrested. Fries was tried for treason and convicted and sentenced to be hanged, but President Adams, who, by the way, was the guy who had championed the Sedition Act, which is now coming into play in Trump's trials. Pretty interesting. He narrowed legally, you know, he was a brilliant lawyer. He narrowed the definition of the term of treason and pardoned the auctioneer. And Adams also noted, kind of interesting, that many of the tax resistors were German descent and spoke little English, and therefore were probably ignorant of the law. And he issued a general amnesty for everybody who had participated in the rebellion in the year 1800. Then we come to John Brown. He was convicted of treason, but not against the United States. Many people don't know this. He was captured during the raid he led against the arsenal at Harper's Ferry, right? This is around the time of the Civil War, and he was an ardent abolitionist. And it was the Commonwealth of Virginia, the state of Virginia, that brought the charges against him. And despite the fact that the arsenal was federal property, and the capture of Brown and his followers were by U.S. Marines, which, by the way, how do you like this for a twist of history, that were led, folks, by Army Colonel Robert E. Lee. Brown and his followers were sent to Charleston, for trial on state charges, multiple counts of murder, inciting slaves to rebel against their own owners, treason against Virginia. And in an hour, just took one hour, the jury in Charleston convicted Brown, and he was hanged on December 2nd, 1859. And as another little interesting twist to history, particularly given the looming Civil War, there was a lot of concern that Brown's followers would try and spring him out of prison. And so the prison and the security was provided by a detachment of cadets from the Virginia Military Institute. And do you know who they were led by? A guy by the name of Thomas J. Jackson, who was an instructor at that military institute. And he was not yet known by his nickname. Stonewall, Stonewall Jackson, that's right. And then in 1842, Thomas Dorr, D-O-R-R, you may have heard that name, some of you. He was a leader of a political faction known as the People's Party, and they supported all sorts of things, including universal suffrage just for white males, etc. He was elected governor under a new, kind of a different state constitution. The People's Party claimed the election was legal, and that Governor Dorr was the legitimate governor, the only legitimate governor. Of Rhode Island, but Rhode Island already had a governor. His name was Samuel Ward King, who obviously refused to recognize the legitimacy of either the new constitution or the, shall we call the second governor of the state, Governor Dor. By the way, in electing Dor, the Rhode Island folks who were supporting him also elected a new and competing legislature to the existing Rhode Island legislature. Governor King, the original Rhode Island governor, appealed to the feds for assistance in resolving this quote unquote dispute. Dorr went to Washington trying to get the support of President John Tyler at the time, and then returned to Rhode Island only to find that his rival, the other governor of Rhode Island, had declared martial law and offered a reward for Dorr's capture. And of course, he was captured. Dorr was captured, he was charged with treason, he was convicted, and he was sentenced to Solitary confinement at hard labor. The sentence was commuted after he served for one year. It's interesting to note that in the 21st century, here we are, Thomas Doerr is still included in the official list of governors recognized by the state of Rhode Island, concurrently serving as governor with Samuel Ward King. You can't make this stuff up. So the last one we're going to be able to cover in depth. We're just out of time. In 1862, there was a dispute over a flag, the American flag and the Confederate flag, that led to an execution for treason. There was a naval squadron commanded by Commodore David Farragut. They were approaching the city of New Orleans. Farragut ordered the Confederate flags that were being flown above the Mint and City Hall and the Customs House be taken down. The mayor refused, and Farragut sent in a detail of Marines to replace the Confederate flags, replace them with U.S. flags. A guy by the name of William Mumford and a group of about, oh, a half a dozen others ignored the warning, removed the flag from the Mint, and were fired upon. Mumford was wounded, and General Benjamin Butler, who was commanding the Union ground forces in the area, issued orders for his arrest. Mumford was arrested on May 1, 1862, charged with high crimes and misdemeanors against the United States, and convicted by a military tribunal. And he was executed by hanging. And Mumford, by the way, was a veteran of the Seminole War in Florida and the Mexican War. Kind of interesting to put that in context with people burning flags and the nonsense that you see today, isn't it? And in the Civil War, Robert E. Lee and all the rest of the Confederate officers were protected from treason charges, believe it or not. General Grant gave them a pardon, but the civilian heads of the Confederacy were not so lucky. Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, he was indicted for treason after the Civil War, captured on May tenth, 1865 in Irwinville, Georgia, kept in shackles and solitary confinement, and never given a trial. He was finally released from custody... After a $100,000 bail was posted, and that was, that was after confinement for two years, President Andrew Johnson issued a general pardon and amnesty on Christmas Day, 1868. And the following year, the indictment of Davis for treason was dismissed. And then there were American mine workers in 1922 that were indicted in West Virginia after the Battle of Blair Mountain. There was a guy by the name of James Monty, a U.S. Army Air Force pilot. In 1944, he stole a P-38 fighter, which had been modified as a photo reconnaissance plane. He flew it to Milan, which was occupied by the Germans, and surrendered the airplane and himself to the Nazis, and then volunteered to help the Waffen-SS. And he was actually given a commission as an officer in the Waffen-SS to work within a propaganda unit. He was eventually captured after the war in his SS uniform, I might add. And he was charged later on with 21 counts of treason. And he pleaded guilty, by the way. And he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Axis Sally, you know, the, the gal that was the voice piece for the Nazis in World War II. Oh, you know, you're over here fighting and your wives and sweethearts are sleeping with other men who don't have the courage to go to war, you know, that whole nonsense. Well, her name was really Mildred Gillars. She was a U.S. citizen working as a radio broadcaster in Germany, and she stayed in Germany because she had a German fiancé who was later killed on the Eastern Front like a year later. She claimed that after Pearl Harbor, she went into a state of shock, and her fear of the Germans led her to sign an oath of allegiance to the Nazi Party and the Fuhrer. In 1948, she was indicted with 10 counts of treason, although only 8 counts finally made it to trial. She was convicted on one of those counts and sentenced to 10 to 30 years in prison. And when she got out of prison, she entered a convent in Columbus, Ohio, as a Roman Catholic. There's another guy, Robert Best. He served the Nazis as a propagandist and a broadcaster also. Born in South Carolina, he was a veteran of World War I, fought for the Americans. And he was writing for the UPI, United Press International, and the New York Times, Newsweek, Time, other publications. Bess became a supporter of Nazi policies, and he really liked their anti-Semitic views. The UPI dismissed him in 1940, and his broadcasts were among the most virulent, nasty, anti-American propaganda aired by the Germans anywhere. He was arrested by the British at the end of the war, transferred back to America, and returned to the United States for trial. He was convicted on 12 counts of treason and sentenced to life imprisonment, and he entered the federal prison system and died there, in nineteen fifty-two. And even though I didn't den it, and no, I didn't talk about Benedict Arnold. We all kind of know his story. The first real big name, real life, larger than life American trader. Now for the rest of the story. So let me ask a question. After listening to the last three weeks, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution the Bill of Rights, and now treason. And putting together the fact, if you agree with it, that treason is really an act against the Constitution because the Constitution is the people of the United States. The Constitution is the document that the government, under the Constitution, per the Declaration of Independence and per the Bill of Rights, is supposed to protect. The government exists to protect the rights of the people, their financial rights, their property rights, their safety and security rights and their freedoms. Now when a government goes astray from the Constitution, when it begins acting outside the confines of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and when actors in that government take money and power and position in return for undermining the Constitution, for ideological or domestic reasons, or for the benefit of a foreign power like China or Romania or Russia or Ukraine. And since Going to the next step in this logical thought process, in the end, all wars are economic. Wars don't have to be about bullets and guns. And if these people degrade the economy of the United States to enrich themselves and to aid the enemies of the United States, remember the words in the Constitution that define treason, is that not treason? And does not, if that is treason, that warrant the extreme penalty for treason, as specified in U.S. Code and the Constitution. And to go one step further, going back to the Declaration of Independence, is it not only our right, but is it our duty to enforce those laws, enforce the Constitution, end the corruption, and end and punish the treason? Think about that. Now, the Speaker of the House. So, McCarthy was voted out Lots of people were wringing their hands, mostly rhinos and members of the Uniparty. But I want you to look past that. Let me give you my take on it, because many people have asked... Whether or not this will turn out to be a blessing or a curse remains to be seen. However, the vitriol and hatred that's being directed at Gates, the congressman from Florida who got this ball rolling, and the other seven Republicans who voted with the Democrats to throw McCarthy out, is, in my opinion, a lot of psyops, mainstream media, and rhino hype, not to mention pylon by the Democrats. The bottom line is... Kevin McCarthy kept spending money. Kevin McCarthy buckled to Biden and the Democrats. In fact, Kevin McCarthy didn't even have the cojones to kick Nancy Pelosi out of the Speaker's office for all this long time, almost a year and a half. The new President Tempore or Speaker Tempore of the House, took that step in the first hours of him being named as Speaker Tempore, In other words, Temporary Speaker. And maybe, just maybe, this act, as incredible and as really unparalleled in history as it is, maybe this will build a spine under some of those Republicans who waver and quaver in the face of enemy, i.e. Democratic Marxists, fire. Time will tell all tales. I'll be keeping abreast of this story for you. And along the lines of this show today, too, there's a link posted on the homepage on therightsideradio.com, along with a number of other links under Rat-A-Tat-Tat on the homepage, upper right-hand corner, under the audio bar. Tucker Carlson had a fascinating interview with Victor Davis Hanson. And it was really about what are we going to do about the pending demise of the country, the downward spiral we find ourselves in. And it was prompted by the Trump's trial on the New York quote-unquote business fraud case. I've told you a little bit about that in the last two weeks. I'm going to tell you a lot more next week. That it is contrived by a crooked administration, a crooked DOJ, orchestrated by a crooked Democratic Party presided over by a crooked judge, and prosecuted by a slime Soros-appointed DA, goes without saying. But one of the things that caught my ear, if you will, or my eye in this video, was toward the beginning of the interview, Tucker kind of describes our current political situation, and he kind of refers to it as a revolution in progress, a unique defining moment in American history with two widely divergent paths. You know, Robert Frost, two paths diverged in yellow wood. And in this beginning of the clip, Tucker even asked Hansen, quote, at what point do Americans take up arms? Unquote. It's an interview you really need to see. And Hansen ended his comments. I'm just going to read you a little part of it. Government can now go into a business, all of the business, and appropriate it and destroy it without cause. They think that's not only good, but funny. The idea is, we now have the power to do this. And because we have the power to do it, it's moral and right. And if you don't like it, what are you going to do about it? And what are we going to do about it? He continued. The only thing I can think of is we're going to have to humiliate and defeat these people at the polls. You're going to have to have a 55% supermajority win to get anything done. We've been complacent and culpable for allowing the leftist spirit to take over our institutions. Now everybody, according to their station, is going to have to say, you know, what? There are two pronouns. I don't care if you get angry. The date of this country is 1776. Got it? That's what it is. And then there is a border, and we're going to enforce it. And just say no, N-O, to all of these things, and then welcome the opprobrium and the attacks that accrue accordingly, and welcome that as a badge of honor. Because what's the alternative? There is no alternative, unquote. Folks, it's time to get off the couch. It's time to get involved. It's time to rise up. It's time to link arms. Remember that meme I keep telling you about. One American stood there and go, but I'm just one American. What can I do? And at the same time, a hundred million other Americans were asking themselves the same thing. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to your community. Build your groups. And then, of course, the specter raised by Tucker in his interview with Victor Davis Hanson. And let's face it, a possibility which has run across all of our minds. There is, by the way... Besides force of arms as the ultimate, there is one other thing that we can do. I'll leave you with this thought. We'll talk about it more in coming weeks. One thing that this government depends on is your money. And that's all I'll say for now. How about some more rat-a-tat-tat? Great article by Dr. McCullough and several videos. A A new COVID jab study out. And it appears, folks, that despite all the protestations to the contrary, gee, how are you surprised, that the mRNA encased in the lipid nanoparticles does in fact penetrate cells and by the way, does in fact change DNA, and the DNA change is generational. Read the article, listen to the videos. The article ends, by the way, with references to a number of protocols that are proving to be very successful in most cases that you can undertake without prescriptions in most cases to rid yourself, or at least temper, the harmful effects of the jab. Under family safety, the COVID page, etc. And in Australia, oh, lawsuits are gaining traction. There's been millions of dollars starting to be paid out. COVID litigation page, for those of you who want to read that article. And also on the COVID line, Dr. Ryan Cole, the Virginia Medical Board, I mean, these people are just monsters, are trying to strip him of his license. And this guy has been fighting for your freedom, your health freedom, and your freedom freedom. And he's been ringing the alarm bells about the turbo cancer, which, by the way, is linked to this change in DNA study that just came out, that has erupted, I mean, exploded since 2021. And obviously, the state of Washington's... I'm sorry, it wasn't Virginia, it was Washington. My apologies to Glenn Youngkin there in Virginia. His fight against the state of Washington's medical licensing board is expensive. Jeff Childers at Coffee and COVID has done a Coffee and COVID kind of fundraising for him. The link to donate and everything for Coffee and COVID is in increments of two, $2, $12, $22, $32. It ends in two so that they know where the donation came from. Click that link to donate to Dr. Ryan Cole. And stand up. This is where you can start, folks. Along those same lines, Judicial Watch, they've now filed 16 lawsuits against the Biden administration over censorship, interference with First Amendment rights, you know, the Bill of Rights that we've been discussing. And they just filed their biggest yet for Charlie Kirk, who lost hundreds of thousands of followers when he was censored, which, of course, the government denied until the truth came out. Thank you, Elon Musk. Because, folks, this is the Declaration of Independence. It's the Constitution. It's the Bill of Rights. And if the deep state agencies can target and censor him, they can target and censor you and your neighbor and your family and everything else in the world you hold dear. Send some money to Judicial Watch, judicialwatch.org. Those guys rock. I think they're first and foremost in protecting your rights under the Bill of Rights. As a sidelight, Biden demonstrated his cadaver status, his evacuous elderly dementia status overseas, once again embarrassing this country. And I'm sure not impressing either Xi or Putin in the middle of a conflict over there in Ukraine. It seems like getting up on the stage with uh, President Lulu, you know, the lefty that was quote-unquote elected in Brazil, who's now uh, playing footsies with BRICS and China, Biden walked into the Brazilian flag, almost knocked it over and then kind of shuffled over to the side of the Brazilian president, and then didn't respond when the Brazilian president was talking directly to him, in English, I might add, from three feet away. Instead, he was playing with some kind of receiver in his ear. It must be his handler, should we say, telling him how to stand, how to look, how to think, and how to talk. And then at the end, <laughs> he didn't shake hands with Lulu, even though Lulu's hand was outstretched. And Lulu had just finished talking about how the United States and Brazil were such great partners in crime. Uh, he didn't say that, but I'll add it. At one point, Lulu even says, quote, Can you hear me, President Biden? This is a historic moment for Brazil and for the U.S., unquote. Nope. No response from Cadaver. Those clips, by the way, are on the rightsideradio.com under rat i am not sure you'll find them humorous, but they are certainly telling. And then, what do you think? China got in return for all that money which went to his home address as has just been revealed well we can only wonder right you got the Chinese spy balloon that wasn't shot down you got all sorts of trade agreements you have our State Department aid actually sending foreign aid to China to the Chinese government I mean really and now you have the Biden administration President Cadaver and (laughs) his corrupt Attorney General Merrick Garland, they have filed suit to overturn any state or local laws that block Chinese purchases of land, including, by the way, land next to sensitive military installations. Oh, well, what could go wrong here? We're out of time. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the right side radio. Remember, look in the mirror, repeat after me, and repeat it with conviction. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and around the globe who love freedom as I do. And we will win. Oh, yes, we will. Keep the wind at your back. I'll talk to you next week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Read Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side.